Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, joined by my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. And Christian, we are joined by a brand new friend of the show, none other than Hannah Perella. Hannah, welcome to Cinema Drip. First appearance. How are you feeling? Good. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, good to meet everyone. And yes, thank you for having me. <laughs> Hannah, I've, I've wanted... So I, I, I know I talked to you like a little bit ago about inviting you on this show, and that is because you do a job... You are very talented at something that I have not just zero experience in, but every time I have tried it, it has gone not well. Hannah, are you someone who uh, has an active romantic life? Hey, oh, that's I, I'm that's mean. That's... Yeah, yeah, Christian, it is. That was the point. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> no, Hannah, your romantic life is unfortunately not the subject of this podcast. But as Christian tells me, you are someone who does work on film from time to time, specifically behind the camera, it sounds like. Yes. Would you like to tell people what you do? Sure, yeah. So I guess aspiring is a better word for it. So I, I want to be a director of photography. The only things that I have shot myself have been um, short films. I did an AC on an assistant camera on a feature film, on a small feature film in South Carolina. Um, and so I've been doing small jobs like that, assistant camera work, things like that. But I do want to be a cinematographer, which is the... Uh, the guy that sort of calls the shots works with the director on the camera front. So they get a lot of say in the lenses they use, the glass, the look that you see in, in the look, in the frame, I guess. Uh, you can see dirtier lenses, more um, different bokeh, things like that, or you can see cleaner lenses. Uh, same with cameras. Uh, if you're shooting on film, shooting digital, they sort of get uh, more of a say in that. The director goes, I have this vision, and the DP goes, how can I help you achieve that? And that's sort of what I want to do there. So I've I've always wondered this, and I don't know if it, um, I've ever actually been able to fully grasp it. But what is the difference between uh, the director's say in the visuals and the cinematographer say? So it varies, and I've, I've spoken to a few like legitimate DPs about this. It's like how much say do, does the DP get? And technically, the director does have all the say. Like the DP can be like, "Oh, I recommend this," and the director can say, "Absolutely not." But in a sort of good, I guess, like healthy relationship on a film crew, usually those positions are hired because the director usually does not have that experience. So they go, okay, like, I, I don't know what I would want, but here's genuinely what I'm thinking. And the DP goes, okay, we can't even do that. Or, okay, we can sort of achieve that by having the camera make, do this movement, do this thing, and sort of give suggestions. So like you see it with like uh, Roger Deakins is a great example of someone who like collaborates really closely with you know the directors he works with. But you also see it with you know who we're talking about, but also other directors as well as um, gosh Ryan Johnson and Steve Yedlin. Uh, Steve Yedlin's the DP for him. A lot of directors will have longtime DPs who they stay with like throughout their entire career, and they sort of just collaborate in a very intensive way where the director is like doesn't have the technical know-how to achieve the shot, but the DP does. So it varies. You do have some sets like Paul Thomas Anderson where he is not a DP guy. He thinks the DP is useless, doesn't do anything right, and doesn't have a DP. Uh, I don't agree with that, but that is a gr great example of like someone who is just like, you don't need a camera department, things like that. PTA the hater. Can't, I, can't I, bring I, in I a like second PTA. in command. I love PTA's DP. <laughs> let's, let's be honest. PTA is, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. That, yeah, that's the beautiful thing. I, I also am ten, tend to be a fan of Paul Thomas Anderson, and his movies often look very good. 
um, Licorice Pizza, which Christian and I got to see on 70 millimeter oh, uh, that's really? in awesome. Westwood, was one of the most beautiful movie experiences I think I've had in a theater. And speaking of beautiful movie experiences I've had in a theater, we're here today to talk about the Grand Budapest Hotel. Once a very beautiful experience that a high school aged Scott Lenz had in a theater. Of course, as we continue on with our Wes Anderson blend of the month here on the show, the Grand Budapest Hotel is his eighth feature coming out in 2014. We talked about the Royal Tenenbaums last week, and that's what really put him onto the mainstream film scene. And he hit some rocky waters after the Royal Tenenbaums, unfortunately, as his following two films, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou and The Darjeeling Limited, both were not received poorly, but certainly were not received as rapturously as his previous movies. There's definitely fans, but they have more mixed reviews, didn't get that Oscar nomination for screenplay that the Royal Tenenbaums did get him. Had a bit of a bounce back with the fantastic Mr. Fox, which ultimately got him his first nomination for animated feature, leading into Moonrise Kingdom in 2012, which once again put him on the critical map, culminating in 2014 with the Grand Budapest Hotel, not only the biggest financial hit of his career, but also the biggest in terms of critical adulation and industry adulation, as it would ultimately go on to receive nine Oscar nominations and four wins at the 87th Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay, all of which it lost Christian to a little movie called Birdman or the Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. My, my, right. my, my number one favorite movie ever. I recently found someone who that is also his favorite movie, and I was like, come child, we are few, but we are mighty. Join the cult. <laughs> Honestly, a very good year at the Oscars, in my opinion. I'm not really sure how consensus that is, but Boyhood was also nominated that year, a movie that I find to be quite fantastic. Movies like The Imitation Game and The Theory of Everything, which are, in my opinion, above average. They're not bad. Picks. They're not bad movies at all. Not bad. Uh, Selma, a very, very good movie covering Martin Luther King Jr., which was dramatically underrepresented at the Oscars, but very good nonetheless. Gone Girl came out this year. Oh, what am I forgetting? There's more, of course, but any other quick Oscar thoughts while we're on it? Uh, I'm not, not entirely, although, although Hannah, so Mm -hmm. before, before we go into this, before we go into specifically Wes Anderson and, and Robert Yeoman, who's the DP on this one. Um, so obviously, you know that I, I, I love Birdman and Emmanuel Lubezki. So Chivo is considered to be one of the greats, but I, when, when people say that there are stalwarts or like most notable aspects of certain cinematographers what can a cinematographer be known for is it notably the color scheme or is that more the director is it notably the use of i don't know dolly certain lenses what what would that be i think it's a little bit of both so i feel like the more deeper you get into filmmaking you'll have like the film kids who will attribute those things to the dp more so like wes anderson has that style but he's definitely not a cheap like you know he he's not the one who's color grading in post honestly neither is neither is yeoman <laughs> uh you know there's someone who's actually doing it themselves but i feel like that look will be more like like people see the like the the film kids go oh wes anderson and they're gonna go oh robert yeoman uh you know they know wes, it's a wes anderson film but i think those looks do get attributed more to the to the DP. So I think definitely like DPs have certain styles and you do start to see that in works with Wes because Yeoman was his DP for a good portion of films. Um, like that was his like his go-to guy um, and has been for a while. Um, so you, I think, you know, the color scheme for Wes Anderson, the cemetery, 
all Wes Anderson's doing, but things like, I think lighting is a big one specifically. Cause like lighting is one of those things where like the camera is the part of the cinematographer, but that does encompass also your lighting techniques. And specifically with Grand Budapest, the way they do use, utilize lights is really, really unique and really interesting. And I definitely feel that like Wes Anderson might've been the guy like, oh, I want to do this. But then yeah, that execution had to come sort of from the direction of the DP to the gaffing team to grip and electric and things like that. So a mix of both. Yeoman, while we're talking about him, has worked on all of Anderson's movies, beginning with Bottle Rocket. Uh, he hasn't worked on the two animated films, unfortunately, so different cinematographer there. Yeah. Um, for Fantastic Mr. Fox and for Isle of Dogs. But, you know, when we talk about, like you're saying, Hannah, when we talk about Wes Anderson, that distinct visual style does come to mind. Yeah. And I think he's a really good example of someone who works collaboratively with the other artisans around him. Because he's known not only for the way he directs actors, but for his sets, his costumes, his production design. Of course, he's not the heads of those departments. Yeah. And for his ongoing collaboration with Yeoman. And so we can you can literally observe the formulation of his visual style from Bottle Rocket on. And that's one of my favorite parts about going back to watch Bottle Rocket, is you can see sort of the glimpses of the Anderson Yeoman visual style, but it's not quite there yet. Yeah. And it starts to emerge more prominently in Rushmore, which is the, the follow-up feature. But by the time we get to Grand Budapest Hotel, it's like they have this thing mastered. They know exactly what they're going for. Yeah. All right. Uh, how How is it that you want us to start, Scott? Let me start with this question, Hannah. For, for Hannah, I should say, because we now know Christian and I's relationship to Wes Anderson. So, Hannah, do you have a particularly special relationship to Anderson or... Where, where do you sit with him and his films? Yeah, so on Anderson's, this is, I'm glad that Christian actually asked me about this because I only just watched Moonrise Kingdom like a week and a half ago. <laughs> My roommate was like, I really want to watch Moonrise Kingdom. And I was like, okay. But over this past summer, uh, I had been doing this thing where I, I, I take a director and I watch their entire work that I have not seen. So like I started with Paul Thomas and then I watched Rushmore, which I had not seen before. Uh, and this this came out of, I watched Licorice Pizza and was like, I like Licorice Pizza. And someone was like, well, if you don't love it, you should watch Rushmore. And I watched Rushmore and I was like, oh, I love Rushmore. Uh, so I think R Rushmore is my personal favorite Wes Anderson film to date. And I had seen his other ones before that as well. Uh, but sort of coming on to that and just watching Moonrise Kingdom, I just very much, I, I do have a soft spot for Wes Anderson when it comes to the Andersons. I tend to lean as a Wes Anderson person over PTA. Uh, so in that, yeah, not to bring up Anderson, both of them, but just like that is over the past summer sort of, I was like, when dedicating myself into looking at both of their works, I tend to be more of a fan of the stylisms of Wes Anderson. Not all of his work though, tends to be my favorite. I think that Wes Anderson is one of those directors like Tim Burton, who you sort of can see this, sometimes, sometimes their work runs in circles. And sometimes it's like, okay, I'm seeing you eat your own words or eat, you're just, I, I, I get it, you know? It's like, I need you to make a point or, high on their own supply kind of situation yeah it's funny to me that you bring up tim burton because he's someone who he is widely beloved but i'm just not there with him or even some of the classics like beetlejuice i can respect but i don't have any like nostalgic connection to it oh no <laughs> And you're not a, more you're not a fan movies, of 2019's obviously. Dumbo? No! Um, no! No, I'm not, Christian. Uh, I did see that movie in theaters as well. Oh, <laughs> no, that's even worse. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we get into the Grand Budapest Hotel, in terms of just a review here, just a couple other questions. Uh, quick things to note really and then we'll talk to the plot synopsis always forget to do that when i'm hosting and i know you like to do it christian so i'll make sure we squeeze that in just for you but 
I think the last thing to mention in terms of just the details of uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel is just the cast. We, of course, have Anderson's trademark ensemble here, led by Rafe Fiennes as Monsieur Gustave, the concierge of the Grand Budapest Hotel, and his protege, Zero, who's hired on as the lobby boy for the hotel, and grows into Mr. Mustafa, who is relaying this tale to an author throughout the framing device of this movie. And just in terms of a quick plot synopsis, the Grand Budapest Hotel takes place in a couple different time periods, but much of the action takes place in early 1930s Europe in a fictional country called Zubrovka, where there is a growing fascist government starting to take over the country. Meanwhile, Gustav and Zero go on a sort of series of misadventures of their own after a wealthy old lady dies and leaves an extremely valuable painting to Gustav in lieu of any of her fascist children <laughs> and he absconds with the painting and they must try to stay safe and etc and around this we also have the elder Mr. Mustafa sharing his story with an author who's played by Jude Law and even around that we have Tom Wilkinson playing the elderly version of this author relaying the experience of writing the novel and bookending the film we also have a young woman coming to pay her respects to a statue of that author so a lot of different timelines that we're working with here but ultimately we'll be talking for the most part about the budapest the grand budapest hotel at its height in the early 1930s with that christian hannah are we ready for our opening question christian you're making you're making positive and affirming hand signals for me so i'm gonna take that as a yes so christian this is directed to you specifically I'll, uh, hannah can of course chime in but you have to own up to something christian in your march 2020 review of the grand budapest hotel which i'm not saying this brought on the covid 19 pandemic but i'm not saying it didn't you know, so many things were going on that I got distracted and didn't know what to focus on in the movie, in a three-star review. So, Christian, have you learned how to watch movies since then, or do I still need to wait for you to catch up? Um, I gave it three stars. You did. You did give it three stars. Dock it half a star. Holy mother of... <laughs> Hannah has been Even... invited out of this podcast when we go... Uh, when I'm about to go... Um, what, what's the word? Biblical? <laughs> yes, on Christian. You, um, even as you were relaying the plot synopsis, my eyes were glazing oh, over. No. And as, as, as I saw this movie, I think it entered my ears and left them, it entered my eyes and left it immediately. I, because I realized I'd forgotten a lot about the plot and that's because there's so much and the story is so convoluted. And it starts with this woman picking up a book, and I realize I also don't care about that woman, or I don't care about the old man, and I don't care <laughs> about the Jude Law interaction interview. No. And all I could think about when I was watching this movie is, there are so many whip pans, and there are so many dolly shots, and there's nothing else. It's just, just, just honestly, just no put sets. a... Just do no a costumes. 360 camera and have no it go round and round. And that's the movie. No That miniatures. is the entire... Oh, I... I And I realized I didn't hate it. I just felt nothing. I felt absolutely nothing. So, Hannah, yeah. from here on out, just talk to me. No. You can leave Christian out of this. I know that you know him and not me. And... <laughs> 
technically he was the one who wanted to invite you on the show because you and I don't actually know we each don't, other. We don't, but now we do. It's okay. But we're about to become real tight. Just ignore Monsieur Ubius over there. Of course, of course, of course. So, Christian, I think what you identify is the primary complaint from a lot of the critics of the Grand Budapest Hotel. Although it is his biggest financial hit and very well critically received industry awards and all that, there are still critics, of course, because he's Wes Anderson. And as Hannah has also mentioned, he certainly can get high on his own supply. And I'm the kind of person who asks him to pass it, and then I get uh, extraordinarily high as well. But other people sometimes hate the style. And where I can understand and appreciate that you have that opinion, it just dismays me to hear you say that you, you're like eyes are glazing over and you're getting nothing out of the experience. Let me, okay, let me let me try I, I I want to be fair because you you really love this movie and and I, I I don't I don't want it to be a repeat of like John Wick which went bad uh Hannah you have not listened to that episode basically um Scott drops an f-bomb in the episode which which we had to delete in post I think I'm gonna stop deleting them and just beep it like Censor, we did last yeah. Time. yeah 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 <laughs> Um, no, but Christian it, suggested cutting the first twenty minutes of John Wick, which provides all of the emotional backstory for the character. That's the whole so. point. John Wick, ha- you need you need it in order for for the plot to go, Christian. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I, I I'm I I'm normally pro dog in movie. I was so anti dog in that. Oh movie. my god, that's, that's the whole movie, Christian. You need it. Uh, okay, look, look. Here's um. There is undeniable craft on display. And, and there are things here that no one but Wes Anderson would attempt to do. And there are some things that are genuinely thrilling, like the bobsled ride or the, the skiing thingy. I, I've, oh, I've, I, that was the one thing where I remember from my, I've, I, this is now the third time that I've seen this movie, that, that I'm like, that is so cool being able to watch it. But also, I forget why they're chasing Surge. I forgot Willem Dafoe was Surge. I forgot what it is that happens afterwards. And it's one of those where the the story story is actually a simple through line. The story is actually, you know, um, one of the women whom who uh, uh, Ray Fine's character uh, helps out, who checks into this hotel, dies. Cool. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. There's a lot Helps of sex out. going on. Yeah, Helps yeah, out in heavy quotation marks. T- tons of sex. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Some. There's a whole meat euphemism going Gustav on in here. Gustav beds elderly rich women who come to the hotel. That that's what he does. They're all they're all blonde. They are. And they're yes. all blonde. This is true. This is true. Um, and someone murders her, and and she she leaves him a very priceless painting in in the will but the family's upset that she left him this painting and then he needs to prove his innocence basically or he needs to prove that he actually owns the painting actually maybe the plots maybe maybe it's not really a straightforward line but there's there's so much going on and the character of zero is kind of supposed to be our gateway into the world you know as someone who's been working at the grand budapest and but i i i couldn't I, I, I couldn't really understand anything. I couldn't really care a ton about Zero. Despite the fact that, despite the fact that, honestly, it, it's 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 not a bad performance by Tony Revolori at all, and Ray Fiennes is not giving a bad performance. But I, they're they're, they're so 
stuck and needing to put in all of these quirky dialogue techniques and for us to dolly from one room to the other and for us to like whip pan from one section to the other and all of these weird paintings and i i just i'm not i'm not caring Mm. So real quick, uh, Willem Dafoe's character is not Serge. Yeah, he's playing a different no. character. Never. Matthew Merrick is playing Serge. <laughs> I then I still don't know. But I, Hannah, do you agree here, just in terms of the plot? Because for me, there is obviously there is a lot of plot, especially as Anderson movies go. There's sort of a not quite a murder mystery kind of story here because we know pretty early on that um, that Madame D is uh, played by Tilda Swinton. She's murdered quite early on. Yeah. I'm not really questioning that. Not really about solving the murder, so to speak. More so about Gustav and, and Zero. But do you agree here that the that the convoluted story pulled you out of it? Or are you where, where are you in terms of the positive negative feelings as it relates just to the story i will say there was a quote in the in like the plan that you guys sent me that christian had that i was like well i i where, where you were like oh does christian know how to watch movies where i was like i'm not gonna lie that's kind of the experience of watching the grand budapest hotel so i'm not saying that i agree with christian fully but it is it's one of those movies where hang on let me pull up the exact one because when i read it i was like yeah that's that's pretty accurate and then i was like oh we're disputing that and i was like okay well let me uh go back yeah so i'm I so- had all that i said all that about how i wanted to be your friend hannah now i'm just gonna have to do a solo <laughs> no, no please scott no way both of you aren't here <laughs> listen that so many things were going on that i got just, i I'm, i just think that the it's got a solid plot line all the way through. So like that, I, I don't agree. I, I just, I agree with that. Like that one, the plot is, I found it to be very straightforward. Like it's cause you get through the plot of how he's framed and then that's just him sort of going to prison and the escape and everything there. Cool. That's all very outlined. Um, this film clocks in what an hour 45, I think it is. It's an hour. Just 40. under an hour 40. Oh, just yeah, under an hour 40. So it's not credit. too long. However, it does do this thing where, um, it kind of feels more than that. Um, so I can't say if that's like a bad thing, but I will say that like, I feel there are less, there's less of a concrete path to follow. Like it's not like, like your main character, I guess Zero doesn't really feel like the main, main character, if that makes sense. So I kind of agree with Christian in that way, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like you jump back and forth between Zero and Gustav in a way to where you're just sort of like, and, and also Willem Dafoe's character, who is, I think it's like Jopling. I don't know if that's the correct name for it. Yes. Uh, so you sort of also hit that side as well. But I wouldn't say it's bad though. I think it's by design, if that makes sense. Like, I think that is how you are supposed to view the film. I don't think it's negative. I don't think it's positive. I think that is just how, does that make sense? Like, I, I wouldn't, I don't fault Christian for taking, for walking away and being like, <laughs> you're free to not fault him i will continue to fault him the list of grievances grows podcast by podcast oh no i think so i think to just to the effect of the story the this is once again a very literary type of movie and we discussed the royal tenenbaums last week not sure if you've watched that one recently hannah but again that movie it opens up on this sort of fake novel called the Royal Tenenbaums and that the chapters that Anderson is using, it features little blurbs of what's about to happen on screen. And again, we're stealing not, not only the literary motif for the, or I guess reusing for the Grand Budapest Hotel. It's a, once again, a fictional book playing out, but we also have, we have chapters and we have the author themselves, a character in the story via framing device where it's a story within a story within a story yeah, <laughs> within a story. I'm pretty sure. And of course, that that final layer 
is all of one minute of screen time at the beginning and the end this is, as we see this young lady sitting by a, a statue so christian you you bemoaned not feeling any cares or connections to this person i don't either but i don't think you're supposed to she's just there uh, as a plot device I, but can I, I, I do want to know what your feelings are not well in terms of the movie or at least like what stuck out with you since you have been re- uh visiting wes anderson's yeah so I re- I, this was a rewatch for me so this is my third time seeing it as well and um it's never been my favorite but then again that's not like a it's never been my least favorite though either you know it's always one of those ones where i i think it's really i think it's sort of like on honestly like not the peak but that's the first time that wes anderson in my, I haven't seen the. I've, I, I love the Life Aquatic. I love the Life Aquatic. I love Rushmore. I have not seen the the Darjeeling Limited, but for me, when I watched Grand Budapest Hotel for the first time, that's like the first time that that style is like a hundred percent there, where, where it's like uh, in every category, if that makes sense. Like obviously, Rushmore is my favorite culmination of the style, but in in the Grand Budapest Hotel, it's like every single thing is on is exactly where it needs to be to have his style be fulfilled permanently. And, and so I think that like, and I think the story is very sweet. Like I do like the roundup ending. I like when they, when they switch from the, from four, three over to two, three, five again, that's a really cool moment and you feel real sad. And like, I think that's a really, it, it emotionally pulls you, but I didn't like leave being like, that's best picture material. If that makes sense. I'm glad it, it got you- nominated. I'm glad that like, you know, but it, it's not my favorite of all time of his. Could you um, just briefly overview what's the difference between four, three, two, three, five, and also like when both would be like what what is the significance of when one would choose one over the other? Yeah. Before so that, you, yes. before you even say that, like the movie itself employs this tactic of changing the aspect ratio yeah. depending on the time period that we're in. And yeah. if you don't know what aspect ratio is, Hannah's about to explain it. But basically, there's an aspect ratio assigned to each time period as we switch back and forth between them. Now, Hannah. Yeah, yeah, no, I think, I think if I'm correct, looking back, this is the first time that Anderson does this on his films. I haven't seen Battle Rocket, so I cannot say if he doesn't Battle Rocket or not, but Wes Anderson usually sticks to a consistent style throughout his film. So a good example is when I was watching Moonrise Kingdom, I was like, oh, this looks distinctly different than his other work. So um, like with that one, for instance, he shot it all on 16 millimeter and he changed his lens and cameras. For this one, he went back to anamorphic. So this one, you see that return to that style. Now with that style, what you're gonna notice is a lot of those shots are very symmetrical. What you're also gonna notice is that the ends of the frames are warped. Uh, so that's only going to come from using an anamorphic lens. Wes Anderson loves an anamorphic lens because you can get a wider shot. Now you'll also notice he uses three aspect ratios throughout this film. Uh, the first one is is a standard. It's like a 16 by 9 is a bad way to say it, but it's American standard. It's sort of the basic. That's the girl when she's like reading, when she's going to the cemetery. Uh, they use that. And they also use it for when the author is explaining how he wrote the book. And that's sort of, I, I, I can only assume meant to be like, this is sort of like our, our life. This is the, what the rest of us are living in sort of thing. When they cut to the story with Zero and Gustav, everything is 4-3. So it's a 1.33 aspect ratio. Uh, when doing it for this film, though, they wanted to do it because it's very historic. It's called the Academy Standard. And it's very much, it, it's, it, it lends itself to films of that time period. That aspect ratio is commonly used. And then 2-3-5 is going to be what you see at the very end when he's like, oh, they shot him. And it sort of it pulls out there and you get you get that final reveal and that is an that is an anamorphic lens at its at its like regular standard frame uh and what's important about that is that uh <laughs> this is my last thing on lenses but like spherical lenses and anamorphic lenses are your two choices spherical lenses have round glass inside the glass is spherical so when a lens or when a movie uses a shallow depth of field and you see a shot with circles behind a character bokeh uh, when you see that with a spherical lens they're true circles when you see with anamorphic, 
they're shooting on compressed on ovular glass. So you're going to see the frame get stretched out, and you'll also notice that those circles become slightly ovular. So that is what's going on throughout that entire film. So what's unique about that is for the stuff on 4.3, you're also cropping in on an anamorphic lens, if that makes sense. Like they're cropping in the shot. So very neat. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Hannah, you might be the best guest we've ever had. Like, this is this is this is fascinating. Film Wes Anderson, he's so committed to the look, so it's really neat. Like he's a very very talented filmmaker. And also, what's cool about anamorphic is they're tight. They're tight lenses. And because if you watch Wes Anderson films, he fits a lot in the frames. Like you know when you when you when you going from room to room on these dolly tracks, you're seeing the entire room. So you're shooting at like 28 millimeters. Like you're shooting very wide. Whereas like directors like Hitchcock shot primarily on 50 because it's true to the human eye. So Wes Anderson already does a lot more by doing these sort of exper experimental lens choices. So very neat. On I'm going to have to re-listen to the That's totally fair. In order to like get everything that you're saying. That's totally fair. <laughs> I get and like with the notebook and take notes and everything. Oh man, this is yeah, great stuff. Christian. Maybe maybe someone who actually works in the film industry can convince you of the beauty and the power of the visual art. It's form. really stunning. Even the production designers, yo, for Grand Budapest Hotel, popped off. It's like a stunning film. Like that's incredible. A well-deserved Academy Award for for the folks who handled the production uh, and then just the the set design, it's beautiful. Design, et yeah. for this particular movie. It's funny because going back to the Oscars this year, Birdman and Grand Budapest are the two big juggernauts. They get. They yeah. both get the most nominations. They both get the most wins. And Budapest wins in craft categories. It wins score. It wins production design. It wins makeup. And it wins score. Uh, or is that score? Wins um, one other that I'm forgetting. Whereas Birdman wins cinematography. Shout out to Emmanuel Lubezki in the middle yeah. of an absolute heater uh, as he was in the middle of 2010s. But also winning for screenplay director and picture. <laughs> so Christian gets the big awards, but I get the fun awards. Exactly. And that's Except for cinematography, which is my usually my favorite uh, category. <laughs> oh, fa okay. Fascinating, actually. That's really neat. Cool. Actually, uh, Scott, I'm not going to hijack this. Please, please continue to, to either direct us to other questions that you have. If not, I do have a question. Sure. Yeah. So Christian, save that question because I do mm -hmm. I do want to hear it. This is I, I should say for the listeners, I mentioned this last week, I think, but this is my favorite Anderson film, just so I can kind of get my thoughts out quickly. And it's the movie that I mentioned had a beautiful experience in the theater. I sat down in March of 2014 or whenever I saw this movie and it just blew me away because it was my very first Wes Anderson movie. And it's that kind of movie where I'm just I've just been chasing the high ever since, which is why I've seen the rest of his movies since there's something about Grand Budapest that really speaks to me. And I think I've identified it a little bit, and I want to get into that thematically. Um, talking just through the story here, I think, yes, it can get a little bit convoluted. Christian, you joke about how my relaying of the synopsis of the movie causes your eyes to glaze over, which it should, because I'm just repeating it, and I'm not dynamically presenting it using film. But I think the thematic depth here is is something that has drawn people to the Grand Budapest Hotel. And like you said, you think that Tenenbaums is one of is maybe his most emotionally deep film. And I'm not even arguing that that's not true. I think a lot of people feel that way as well, a lot of Anderson fans. But there is something thematically deep to me about the Grand Budapest Hotel. And maybe it's because it's such a literary film. He's drawing on the writings of Stefan Zweig, this or Zweig might be how it's pronounced, but this Austrian writer who is who lived back from the, the, Aust the austria-hungary empire back through yeah yeah he he died either just before, i think just after the onset of world war ii uh but his writings ultimately would culminate in 
describing Austria's sort of fall into fascism around that period of time and his hopelessness over Europe was a contributing factor in his mental health near his, near his own death. Um, but the the way that this movie is set against this, I need to stop talking, so <laughs> I'll throw it back to you guys, but this rising fascist empire, but we do have this, this older man in the 60s remembering his life. And I think nostalgia is such a rich theme here. And I think that's something that's drawn me to it as, as I'm unfortunately a very nostalgic person. Uh, just in terms of the way that Anderson deploys that theme, Christian, I'll go back to you. Um, what do you make of that? Because I know the story itself doesn't entirely work for you, but it can you at least identify the themes that Anderson's working with, or does it just frustrate you because you can't draw anything out of the well? Well, I, I think he's he. I think he kind of has a thesis sentence, which is um, like when you were saying when it goes into what was it? Was it the two five? the when it's in black and white and and um it's when i mean we're spoiling this movie we've already spoiled the movie yeah yeah, yeah. um but when monsieur gusto uh dies because he's trying to defend a zero from the individuals in the fascist regime who are stopping the train and want to take him outside uh what 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 is it that older zero says which is um there are few remnants of humanity left in the world but he was one of them and then also, I don't even... Uh, Which is a quote from Gustav earlier in the movie that he's yeah. he's stealing. And then uh, what else that you don't even... Th- um, something about him not even thinking that Monsieur Gusteau was of his time, but a relic of something past. I wrote it down for you, Christian. He Once they zoom back to the 60s and he's talking to the author Jude Law at this time, he says, to be fair, I think his world ended long before he entered it, but he sustained the illusion with a marvelous grace. But I'm, I think that that thesis sentence is what he is trying to show, which is why he spends a lot of time with Zero and Gusto, and showcasing the dynamic that they have, playing off of one another, and Gusto's approval of Agatha, who, by the way, I forgot that the line came in, which was that um, Gustav, sure, thank you for correcting me, with the lines like Agatha and our newly born child and our daughter died two years later and i'm like oh okay <laughs> c- c- cool good to know good to know that is uh, funny moments. that is funny i don't know that when that happens funny. you're just like guys you're, you're like okay sad. That it's sad, it's sad but it's also like what it happened off screen that's it rip like it's kind of like okay. I'll, I'll defend that in a second but, but the, speak, Christian. It, it, i am not I, I don't know i didn't see a ton of chemistry between the two of them. The um, two of who? You're talking about a lot of between Gustav and Zero. I, I, I didn't see. I I I I I didn't see a ton of like the father son relationship to it. And I think part of that is because I kind of wish Tony Revolori had been given more. It does feel like he is just like the anchor for which we can then see how Rafe Fiennes is attacking this role. And, um, I mean, Rafe Fiennes, like, like uh, Gustav, um, similar to Royal Tenenbaum last, last week, teeny bit racist, <laughs> like, like, like a, like a, like a tad racist. And, um, notably it, unlike, uh, Royal Tenenbaum last week when he's called on it, he owns his mistake. He owns his mistake. <laughs> yes. But this, is also a story where we have the immigrant who lets you see how great the white mentor is. <laughs> just, just, just a bit. <laughs> now, now, it's it's not fully 
you know, there. And I have defended things that people think are racist about other filmmakers that I disagree with. And 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 you please, I uh, fully fully you know d- defend Wes Anderson here. Although it does kind of feel like it's a bit of a through line in his movies. <laughs> um, just just gonna. Put that there and then it's step entirely back. fair to say Anderson had very, I mean, almost all of his movies center on a white male protagonist, uh, or they're kind of the co lead. And even in the Grand Budapest Hotel, of course, Tony Rivolori is is not a white man, he uh, he, he is an actor. I, I scanned his Wikipedia before this, I think it said he's um. I think it's a Guatemalan descent, but I'm not entirely sure of, of all of his ethnic heritage. But um, notably, of course, Zero is you know not a not a white character, but like you're saying, Gustav is. Um, so I, I again, once again, this is just a, a f- totally fair critique of Anderson is that his his twee little whimsical films focus on white people. <laughs> like that is a fair thing to say about Anderson. I think some of your critiques of this particular movie are a little bit off base. And it starts in just something that's that's purely opinion-based. We're like, if you're not buying the chemistry between Ray Fiennes and Tony Rivolori, then, like, God help you. There's there's nothing that's going to redeem that. And, and I think it's so apparent. And and what's funny to me is that Rivolori would go on to things like Marvel's Spider-Man movies, you know? He, yeah. He's not he's really... But not wait. What it's it's Flash is the nickname of his character, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, but Flash. Um, but he he's not really become an indie darling. He hasn't reappeared in a Wes Anderson movie either that I can remember at least. But uh, this is a really strong breakout performance from him, I think, uh, especially across from. Gustav. He was in the French Dispatch. He was in the French Dispatch. So my my mistake there. That's on me. And I think one key thing to note about their relationship is, again, this the movie is not entirely set in 1932 following their adventures. The movie is about an author interviewing the older Zero about his memories of the Grand Budapest Hotel, of his mentor, Monsieur Gustave, and incidentally, his, his young love with Agatha, which is cut short by disease. And I think that that is a... Again, nostalgia being a key theme here, remembering that as part of the framing device is key. It's not, and again, you can critique the screenplay all you want, I guess, but it's also about this person remembering not only his mentor, but also the person who gave him the, the resources and the means to own the hotel later on in life and to become the wealthy person that he became. So there's, of course, that rose-colored glasses that are on Mr. Mustafa's face as he remembers his time as young Zero with Mr. Mustafa. Hannah, do you have any, I guess, with even with that central relationship, anything that where you, you're kind of leaning with me, leaning with I, I think I do agree with you. I, have, I do see both. I think when I was watching it, there were moments where I was like, oh, this could really quickly sort of be a bad boss portrayal. Like, you know, we've all had, like strange bosses where you're just like Ugh. but I also think that like this film does a great job of like like Gustav's never a never a bad evil person to him and I think that like well I mean like there but that he does own up to the racist remark uh which is still very bad but I think that they could have done it like I think uh in more Wes Anderson could have had a, had a, had this character brush it off and it still be in character like they could have had his character be like oh well whatever like you still forgot the stuff uh, and still brush it off. So I think it is good they at least had him be like, have him apologize and have him be like, no, 
I'm not going like I'm glad the relationship the relationship was kept up as like they were friends they were brothers until the end and not just like I'm using you because you're my protege and I want to use you to help me get out of prison like I, I do think that like in the end it was supposed to be like lol here's the story of how I met this silly man who wooed old women and I, that's how I came into hella fortune like I, I'm sorry for saying hella um but I think <laughs> hella is allowed to be said never you thank fear. you like I think this movie is more supposed to be whimsical and it leans into that very style wise as well just like a, like, a, like, a, like a fun tale of like you'll never guess what I did when I'm in my youth and I think like it's it's less of like I think if we were meant to see Gustav as like my shitty that's bad. I can't say that. My bad boss. We would have seen Gustav portrayed more as like, you know, more more taking, 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 and not sort of being like, oh, I understand you, and I want to be your friend, and I want to be this guy. Like we do see hints of like, you're gonna write, you're gonna write up my my will, and you're gonna, you know what I mean. But I think we do sort of see it at the end come to like, they are very close at the end. But fair read as well. I totally see where you're coming from. This is a critique that I don't normally have. And 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 um, Hannah, this is this is one of the reasons I thought you'd be perfect to talk to because um, I'm not. Well, honestly, I this camera never stops moving. Yeah. This this camera does not stop moving. It is whipping all over the place, or it is dollying everywhere. And I wish that it could have just sat and looked at them both because he loves his you know square frame and he loves his perfect symmetry, and I wish I had that for at least 30 seconds to see them in nice deep conversation before it pans somewhere it's it's not it, it it's just non-stop so well remember the fact that christian's alleged favorite movie of all time wins the oscar for best cinematography this year <laughs> for being for yep. faking being a oneer <laughs> and Again, just being instead of instead of whip panning and dollying around a hotel, it is instead strapped to a, a camera operator's steady cam and they walk around this theater for two hours. So I, I'm not sure why you're complaining so much about the, the camera movements and techniques used in this movie, Christian, especially when your favorite is also this year Be and is equally audacious more audacious. Yes. Yeah, no, you're you're right, and, and I was thinking about that as I was thinking what I was going to say, kind of like a my hypocrite for saying this, but I also think that um, Birdman is trying to showcase the different levels of the theater in one shot to kind of compress time, to say that I mean it's still going through four or five days, and there is a claustrophobia that is arising. Because the times that the cuts actually come in and it cuts to like jellyfish on the sea, something along that, the, um, I don't know, I'm saying something along that line. It's jellyfish on the sea who stung him earlier in life. There, it's, 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 it's noticeable. It's a noticeable break. We don't get the changes in aspect ratio until the very beginning and the very end as bookends. It's not like it's a consistent motif going on. And it wants us to care about the, uh, about, raves about Gustav's presence as a fatherly figure, about his antics, about his not womanizing, but kind of, yeah, womanizing, and, and, and how that's, like, cute and adorable. And then the camera's moving out of frame. It wants to go deeper into these characters, but I don't think the camera settles enough for us to see that. 
And that's that's my complaint about the camera movement in this film. Um, I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure if any of you. I mean. I mean, Scott. Look, I know you don't agree with that. I know. I. I, I get it. <laughs> no, I absolutely don't. But <laughs> I also think you're misreading the relationship between Gustav and Zero. I don't think there's a hint of fatherliness in Gustav from, uh, in in that dynamic. I agree. Yeah. Especially because he Zero keeps requesting that Gustav stop flirting with Agatha, who we should mention is played by Sarah Sharonin. Notably, she has a birthmark that is Mexico-shaped, plastered under her cheek in this movie. Uh, and then she also features in what may be the most beautiful single shot in the entire Anderson filmography. That's, if people know anything, they know that shot. That's like very much, yeah. Yeah, before I saw the movie, I was in a cinematography class and recreated that shot. Like, it's one of those things where that's one of those things, like, this movie has inspired a lot of gorgeous scenes. And again, that particular moment. What shot are we talking about? So we're talking about the moment where Zero, the older Mr. Mustafa, is starting to finally talk about his young courtship of Agatha, which he has evaded at this point in the story. And eventually he's talking about how they had begun a romantic relationship shortly after Zero began as the lobby boy at the hotel. And they go on this little date and they go to a carnival. They're on a merry-go-round. This is, I would call it a funny moment where Zero gifts this book of romantic poetry to Agatha, inspired by Gustav's love of romantic poetry. And Zero spoils what the gift is before she can even open it. But then after she does, she reads the inscription. And then the camera cuts to a subjective point of view from Zero's point of view, seeing Agatha... With how we the lights are behind halo. her head yeah. yeah yes and and she is haloed by these lights behind her head and in that moment Sarah Sharon is the most beautiful person who's ever lived for for two seconds <laughs> like, she is she is uh, a goddess among men uh it, it's just an incredible uh slight moment i think of this andersonian style of course where she's centered in the frame obviously but it's deeply subjective beautifully choreographed and executed in my opinion and again, I think that's how much of the camera work in this movie is, where it is it is often subjective. And I, I think there's plenty of visual storytelling going on. Just because there's a, a lot of whip pans or zooms or dolly effects doesn't mean that we're sacrificing the, the way the camera can help tell the story. And Hannah, I want to turn to you, because I, I have other moments coming to my mind, but is there a particular moment where someone, like, as as someone who works behind the camera and who attempts to tell stories visually, like any particular moments in this movie that spoke to you from that perspective where you could clearly say, hey, this is, they're trying to say this and they're saying it perfectly. I, this is a great moment. Yeah, I mean, I think that scene in a whole, like I knew it was coming and so rewatching, I was like, okay, that one is obviously like, that's a, that's a classic. That, that shot in itself is like so well known and well like loved. Um, I think on a rewatch for me, what was really fun to see was the way that they would use um, spotlights, uh, which is really like, but they would use it to highlight small things. So they would use these small pinpoints of light, whether it be like on a card that Gustav was about to pick up or whether it be on the author as he's sort of telling this little, I think they just had a very unique way of sort of uh, working with, and that's just more of, I guess, like a, like, the cinematography side of me was like really appreciative of how they sort of showed the, when the car drives, they have like the light shooting up ahead. Uh, they, they, it's very, um, even when they're doing, when Gustav is calling for help from the other hotels, uh, hotel owners and whatnot, uh, they'd flick on like these, these, these spotlights onto these guys. And it, it's very, it's almost like a play. Like, I think that's what's really, and, like obviously a lot of his work is, but I think this one uh, is like almost the perfect mix of, 
blending filmmaking with that play style to where it's like a perfect little um, diegetic way of like having lights go on mid scene and have it. So I think like, I don't know if there was a particular scene, but like Christian, you mentioned the, like, the skiing when the boots strap on, that's a really cool scene. I watched it. It was like, I don't know how they did it, but it looks cool. Uh, they, the style it leans towards, it feels old. A lot of these zoom ins and zoom out. I don't know. It's a very stunning film. I don't know if there's any scene that I'm like, Oh, it just like is more so than normal. Um, but I think the color palette for this one is a big one. Like, I think if you were to pull these colors out and show a, like, a person, they could probably go, oh, it's Wes Anderson. Like, very much yeah. this film is very, it's so Wes, it's so Wes Anderson. Smartly, the, the eras differ not only in aspect ratio, but in color palette. And in the scenes that we do get in the 60s, when the Grand Budapest Hotel is sparsely populated, it's well after its golden age, and the author, the young author is interviewing Mr. Mustafa. It's very beige, very brown, orange. Yellow, yeah. And there's still some some beautiful moments, like you're saying, where they'll kind of pull these spotlights. Again, very subjective lighting here, but putting the spotlights directly onto our two main characters to kind of highlight them in this big, empty room. But then you go back in time to the 30s when the Grand Budapest was at its height. Uh, unfortunately, with the encroachment of this fascist regime coming to ruin that, but... We, the, the colors are like candy coated. <laughs> it's bright pinks, it's purples, it's blues, it's reds. Uh, yeah, very, very beautifully done uh, in terms of the use of color. Yeah. Um, so while we're on this line of just the visual storytelling, I want to come back to a moment that we've been talking about a lot. We've been talking around it, but it's this moment where there is a burst of, unfortunately, racism in the movie. So gustav is eventually taken to prison there's a moment that i will always remember from the trailers actually where he absconds with a painting he and zero is gone with the painting and ultimately the police show up at the hotel and arrest him for the murder of this elderly woman and he basically says something to the effect of oh so she's been murdered and you think i did it and then immediately turns around and starts running away <laughs> and eventually he is put into prison Stages an escape, love a Wes Anderson style prison break with a group of quirky prisons, uh, prisoners, of course, and Zero meets him after they escape. And Gustav is asking for all of these things that Zero seemingly has forgotten, including, most importantly, Le Air du Panache, this cologne that he wears throughout the movie to very great scent effect, apparently leaving a cloud of cologne behind him wherever he goes. And he starts the the stress of the experience causes them to blow up on zero and ultimately says something about how zero is uh you know why did he as an immigrant even come to this great country where these great men are refined and doing good things he should have stayed and something horrible about what zero's people must be doing back in whatever fictional country he's from and when zero finally gets a chance to respond and of course this is a person who has been his mentor who's guided him along who's been very encouraging to him who's finally going off on him in this, this very racist way the camera changes and for a while it's just been this two shot where they're of course in the center of frame it's so focused on them and then anderson cuts and it shows zero alone and i wouldn't call it a point of view shot because he's not centered in the frame he's not talking to the camera but it cuts just to him as he describes his experiences and ultimately he came to this country because his family was killed and in the conflicts that were happening before this big war that they keep alluding to eventually breaks out and when they cut back to the two shot gustav starts to eat crow and he says ah so you're more of a refugee than an immigrant and i've you know i've made a fool of myself and and i think again it's not at this perfect moment 
uh, of Anderson owing up to his critics who say his movies are about white people going on quirky adventures or learning lessons about themselves and their families. That doesn't entirely erase all of that valid critique of Anderson's films. But I think in this particular moment, by shifting the camera to focus on Zero, it allows him to own the frame that he's been sharing with Gustav up to this point. And it allows us to get the gravity of the situation. Again, just a way of using the camera to communicate. And even in this scene, Christian, you're complaining about how often the camera is moving, but it's holding on them as they're talking. It cuts to Zero while he talks and then cuts back to them. And there's not a great whip pan until they get on the move again. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say what you just said to me is more captivating than their little chase or going through the monastery and being stopped four times to see who if the, he's actually Gustav so that they can go and they can finally talk to Serge so that Serge can be stabbed in front of them so that they can go into the bobsled. Me learning that about Zero, I loved and I got 15 seconds of. So it's, it's, I, I like, yes, that's the moment where it breaks Yes, also, that's a moment I wish we had more of. And again, I think that I, I expand the like emotional tenor of that scene across the movie because, again, it is this remembrance, this, this nostalgic tale being told to an author who, of course, by the time this movie comes out, is likely dead, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like with the framing device. And so it's a remembrance of a remembrance. And I, I do broaden that across the movie. Well, yes, it is very quirky and whimsical and often very funny. I laugh out loud watching this movie. I also think there is that emotional undercurrent. And that, that's one of the peaks of the movie in terms of the, the emotional seriousness of the situation. And, of course, it, it's not, it shouldn't be lost on the viewer that this is all happening, again, as a fascist government that is very clearly modeled after Nazi Germany is rising. And, and so all these whimsical adventures are happening in the face of this very serious governmental threat. Um, and so, I, again... It's very much so not lost on me. It's, yeah, the, I guess... Even, 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 like, the little Z symbol that they have is, like, a, like a redone swastika. Um... Hannah, I did have a, I had a question for you yeah. regarding um, what exactly is the purpose of a whip pan and how um, does that come into effect? How, how it's a pretty simple movement. Yes, but it's still effective, you know, when it, it does grab the shock value. I mean, I just, it's probably, it's one of those things that you're probably going to want to use if you want to have that fast movement to cut to. I can honestly, if I'm remembering Grand Budapest Hotel, the one whip pan that I can really remember is the whip pan in the beginning when the author's son comes in and he's like playing. And he's like, don't do it. And it's like, whip pan. Uh, I know there's more in this movie, uh, but I more think of the dolly shots than anything. Uh, but what, what about the dolly shots? Because, um, I mean, only thing that, you know, is obvious is that those aren't actually walls. <laughs> Or like, you know, like the dolly, but how difficult is it to get that dolly shot? Or at least like how, um, what, why do you need to follow an individual going through? Why would you follow an individual going through and how would you set it up? I think it's great. So the dolly is, the Dana dolly is my favorite tool in filmmaking. Or like I have a, I have a, I have a small bad slider, but the dolly is my favorite tool. And I think it's most effective. I think Wes Anderson gets this. I think it's a very effective way What's cool about Wes Anderson is that a lot of his shots are very simple. Um, simple but complex, if that makes sense. Like, he takes a simple thing like a Dana Dolly, like a push-in or a pull-out, and he, like, 
does it for 50 feet or he like or he's going to zoom in dramatically like there are several shots where like when they're looking at the police from the window where it like cuts to their faces and then it goes all the way onto like someone else and like that's a really impressive thing where it's like either they're using a crazy zoom right there um or they're you know with some of these dolly shots you're going ahead and you're doing a very extensive sort of long pull um but the same goes for a lot of these driving shots as well where the car is mounted on top of the, the camera's mounted on top of the car and you've got sort of like there are lots of things like that where like it's a very complicated technique to pull off. So it's very impressive. Like all of all the things that Wes Anderson is doing is technically really impressive. Very simple but impressive. And I think you feel that. Like I feel like when people watch Wes Anderson's work, no one's like, oh, this is just like Tenet or something, where you're like, this is like you know what I mean? Like you watch films like that and you're like, this camera work is like almost too hard for my brain to comprehend. Wes Anderson's work isn't like that, but I think everyone is aware that it's like it's like like a really good dessert like it's like really really well done but it's simple it's like a, you know what i mean you know what you're getting into yeah i don't know it's fun right this thing sort of like yeah the, it gives the, a very storybook like, feeling it's very like yeah. ch- childlike but it's very like good in that regard you know like wow yeah we're, we're like we're like lubezki lubezki's definitely more known for these like utterly ridiculous how did he do it audacious types of, of shots whether it's pulling off a movie looking like it was a single shot like Birdman or something like the Revenant where it's like all yeah all natural daylight where you're like all natural light in the midst of this like horrible tale of revenge whereas Yeoman working with Anderson is more about honing this particular visual style it's just like you said that sort of quality really bringing out and using the same sort of bag of tricks um, while occasionally expanding on it and and working in concert with what is happening on screen because like you said christian you know why use a dolly shot and i think why anderson likes to use dolly shots is number one to show his work where like he has his production design team go way in depth on the sets and the costumes that the actors are wearing like this is a very fully realized world and he wants to put that work on screen a lot of the french dispatch which comes after this movie obviously but it's literally like looking at dioramas. Like it's, yeah. you could pause it and just kind of admire what's what what all they packed into the scene. And uh, Red Best Hotel yeah. is, is similar in that effect. I think also just allows for the comedy. Like you track with the characters so they can get get out what they're saying without kind of cutting it up in the editing room. And you can yeah. move through it. Wes Anderson's films aren't necessarily dialogue heavy films. They're very like action heavy. You're watching a character do something. So I feel like because you're spending less time with these characters having more than a five minute conversation. Like, he's very, it's kind of storybook in that way where, like, he's constantly moving, you know? I, I can't think of a lot of Wes Anderson films where it's, like, these guys are going to sit down and talk. <laughs> like, it's very much, like, plots happening, and then, you know, it, we're going to move he, on. He's, yeah. a, like, the number one action filmmaker who no one, like, acknowledges as an action filmmaker. Yeah, no, you're totally right, yeah. There, there's more blocking going on in his movies than almost anyone else. And and um, as the final thing that I have to say, Scott, I will end it on a happy note. Wow. Um, the 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 one of our one of our uh, favorite film critics, Sean Fantasy, did say this about Wes Anderson. I do think it's true because I showed um, I've show I've showed Grand Budapest Hotel to a couple of friends. I want to say it was about two years ago, and I showed Royal Tenenbaums to a friend a couple days ago, and they're both like, "This is a movie where people don't realize that movies can do this," because and similar to what you said, Hannah, it's not like they all know what a whip pan is doing and that the camera is turning. They all know that the camera is like gliding through a specific area. They all know what kind of dialogue he's writing, but the color is distinct. The, the stiffness and emotionless and, and bluntness of the dialogue is distinct. The, 
camera movements are distinct. The production design is distinct. It's like a, with some simple tricks, you can make something incredibly memorable. So that that is something that he has that very few other individuals have as auteurs. What you just mentioned, Christian, is why this movie so enraptured me when I saw it for the first time. Because like I said, it was the very first Wes Anderson movie that I saw. And I had that experience of saying, wow, I didn't know that movies could do this, you know. And it was in high school where I started to really start to branch out with movies. I had always loved them. I had some fun summers with Blockbuster back in the day of like renting older movies that I hadn't seen before, like watching James Bond movies for the first time and stuff. But it, I started to use the Academy Awards late in high school as a way to be like, okay, so I, I already see stuff like The Hunger Games and Iron Man and The Avengers. Like I watch those movies. I know that I like those movies, but what else is out there? And it's, it's funny because, of course, now I know the Academy Awards aren't always the perfect example for, <laughs> for that, for, like, selecting, you know, the, the best movies of any given year. No. But in this particular moments, they really worked for me. Uh, and what, what's funny is, of course, I saw this movie in theaters before any uh, nominations were announced. And there's a little bit of a behind the scenes of, like, why this movie made such an impact at the Oscars because it came out so early in the year. And it was it's still Anderson's most successful film at the Academy Awards. But... Even so, kind of starting to get into movies more so than the big franchises and the big Hollywood blockbusters that I knew, The Grand Budapest Hotel grabbed me at that moment. And I've been hoping for an Anderson movie to catch up to the way that it made me feel ever since. French Dispatch got close. And so, who knows? Maybe we'll get there with Asteroid City. Hannah, any final thoughts from you on The Grand Budapest Hotel? No, it's a great little movie. Like, again, I think this is one of those films where, like, if you show this to one person, you can just be like, this is what Wes Anderson is like. Like, I remember my roommate came home last night and I was like, I'm going to watch Grand Budapest Hotel. And I was like, do you want to watch it? And she's like, honestly, I'm a bit Wes Anderson out. And she went to, it's one of those things where like, this is like a perfect culmination of a style. And like, as soon as you know what it is, like it, people know what it is. And it's very sweet. It's very storybook. It's very simple, but it's very like unique and fun to watch. Like Wes Anderson will always be a joy to watch. Christian? Um, I... And I mean, I've, 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 I want to end on a happy note. So no, I'm, I'm all, I'm all, <laughs> I'm all tuckered out. Great. I, I wish we could uh, go through some of the laugh lines here. There's, there's so many great things to say, and we barely talked about the cast. I mean, there's folks like Adrian Brody. We mentioned Willem Dafoe, Edward Norton, Jeff Harvey Keitel, Harvey Keitel, and plenty of Anderson regulars making cameos like Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Jason Schwartzman. All have one or two scene roles. So. A lot of fun to be had here with my personal favorite Wes Anderson movie and one of my just my favorite movies of all time. Absolutely. <laughs> and not Christian's favorite movie, nor Hannah's favorite Wes Anderson movie. But even so, comes strongly recommended by me, recommended by Hannah, and less recommended by this current okay, edition of okay. Christian than he, he, 2020. Here's no no no. <laughs> I I I am perfectly do just do not care about this movie. However, I do think it is I would recommend this movie to someone. Because love it or it might hate have it, better taste than you. I is that what it is, sir? Did I guess it right, sir? I'm gonna need you to back off, Christian. You once bullied me on this very podcast and forced me to give Birdman our one of our best picture of the year awards. After yes. I told you on that episode that I still loved it, but it had lost a step, just a step for me. You then bullied me yeah. and forced me into making it our best picture of that year. I don't foresee you allowing me to do that with the Grand Budapest Hotel. <laughs> so. I, 
I look at the end of this year. Um, if you want to give it something, I'm not gonna fight you. I, I, I also like if we do Wes Anderson rankings in like a week or two, I'm not gonna fight you. Like if you want to put it really high, I'll just fight for some of my favorites to be high. Don't worry, Christian. We are not doing a joint or shared list of any kind at the end of this month. I, I think it would be much less interesting to do it that way with with Wes himself, but. Until we do get there, that is the Grand Budapest Hotel. Unfortunately, not streaming anywhere right now, but rentable wherever you rent movies. Or you come to my apartment, watch the Blu-ray with me, and we'll watch the the vignettes they also made and put on the special features of this particular disc that I have. <laughs> Hannah, want to thank you so much for being here with us. So obviously, you're a, a DP yourself. You love to work behind the camera. So is there anywhere that inquisitive listeners can find your work, whether it's more formally with some of these uh, shorts or other films you've worked on or less formally when you got a sizzle reel or something like that? Yeah, I have a website. I need to re-upload some of my shorts. I've done a few horror shorts. I'm shooting one uh, with a, uh, a few of Christian and I's friends, actually, who we've met recently. So those will be up so- soon as well. Uh, but those will all be my- on my website, which is just my name. So you can find it online. <laughs> but yeah. Amazing. And your your name will be in the notes for this episode, so if folks do want to check that out, it's literally hannahparella.com. Give it a search. Drive some traffic to her website. Let's give her that old cinema drip bump. Thank you. <laughs> Next week on the show, we will be continuing with our Wes Anderson blend of the month by looking at his new release, because of course, Asteroid City is coming out very soon, and we will be covering it live here on the show. Christian, after two weeks, we now have two movies where you didn't go from liking them to disliking them. It was for one, you know, one you still like it, one you maybe don't, but they did lose a step for you. So how are you feeling about Asteroid City before we do get to it? I'm, I I will say I'm unsure because it hasn't gotten the best reviews. And so uh, from the last time I looked it up, it has not been as fa- I, I Although also critics reviews are like whatever to me, but I do find it interesting when like a noted tour coming, not coming back, but being here. On that here. note, according to Rotten Tomatoes, they'll, they'll do, you know, once they get the percentage up for a big enough movie, they'll, they'll pull together a critical consensus. And according to Rotten Tomatoes, critical consensus for asteroid city it says it's unlikely to win wes anderson many new converts but those who respond to his signature style will find this a return to immaculately arranged form so i can kind of see how next week is gonna go for me (laughs) where i'm gonna be here frothing at the mouth in delight and you're gonna be counting down the seconds until the episode ends (laughs) uh hopefully we're wrong uh hannah are you is there a a lot of movies are coming down the pipeline and I've only gotten to speak to you about some of your favorite movies recently, but is there anything that you're really looking forward to that's uh, released this year that you just haven't gotten a chance to see yet? Or is something that you've just loved that has um, stuck around with you? I am going to see Asteroid City, of course, because it's Wes Anderson's new drop. <laughs> I see the billboards in LA and I'm like, yeah, I've never seen a Wes Anderson billboard. <laughs> um, uh, let's see, uh, drops that have come out this year. I'm trying to think of anything that I've seen that I've been like in obsessed with or in love with. Um, probably not so far this year for me. Um, I, 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 I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the film that will be, even last year was not my favorite year, but it was good. I'm not going to lie. Cinema's doing good. Um, as always, or my most recent high, my favorite movie will change depending on what I'm obsessed with. And David Robert Mitchell is my big my big director who I've, wow. I've yeah so under the silver lake is my big thing that i've been on a high for for a little while now 
Uh, but that's, still gotta see it. Oh, you should watch it. Oh, you might dislike it. I don't know. It's I, one of those I once ones. went to war for It Follows against Christian because he's uh, he's a hater for that movie too. <laughs> Fascinating. Well, I'm interested to see what you guys think about Under the Silver Lake, but that is one of my all-time favorites. I very much have been leaning more into this sort of disconnected sort of uh, neo-noir style my favorite kind of filmmaking so I'm waiting for something to come out yeah you can see my my weird the wailing and whiplash and Mulaners. those aren't all my tastes my roommates as well but just sort of like love neo-noir love noir um, I don't know I'm excited to see what else comes out so are you a steampunk person <laughs> yeah I'm in a neo-noir but are you into steam yeah I, I, I like neo-noir film i like black and white film i don't know mysteries <laughs> <laughs> fine. i'm really trying to figure out what synapse was firing in christian's brain I, I just like, that okay. connection yeah exactly but you know all right Alrighty, folks once again we do we do thank hannah here for appearing on the show hopefully we'll have you back soon especially to get your expertise and just in terms of how movies get made and how they are shot very much appreciate your technical know-how there talking about the Grand Budapest Hotel. Absolutely. Thank you so much. There are a few things that folks can do here to support the show, of course. Number one, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or a review where applicable. Helps us reach new listeners and it warms our little hearts to see those positive reviews coming in. So we appreciate the support there if you can. You can also send us an email to cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com where we are regularly checking that inbox and gauging for listener feedback. Would sincerely love to know your favorite Wes Anderson film or maybe you're a hater and think he is a scourge upon the cinematic art form and you want to air out your grievances via email and you can do that and that I may not appear on the following week's episode because I'll, I'll have died spontaneously. But you could do that. You may hold that power over me if you send an email to cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow myself and the show on Twitter, Christian on Instagram, and the both of us on Letterboxd, where we are regularly rating and reviewing the things that we are watching. Hannah, do you have any social media that you particularly like to use or where people can find your work? Um, same on Instagram. Uh, same thing as the website, basically. But, you know. Do you, do you have a Letterboxd? I do, I do, I do. But I, I put hot takes on my letterbox. Uh, people will go, probably get upset. I have been following Christian for years, Hannah. <laughs> I am ready. I'm ready for hot takes. I, I'm very aggressive about it. I'm, I'm, I'm like, this is my opinion and it will not change. So, uh, you know, I don't know. The amount of times I've watched a movie and been like, oh, that was pretty good. And then I go see Christian's two of It's like, you. <laughs> That's so funny. Where it's like, you know that side character who showed up for three minutes? They ruined the movie for me. Two stars, Christian. <laughs> his, his, I have a thing that I say that he hates, which is um, if I dislike a movie, but I don't hate it, I'll be like, that wasn't a movie. I that's, mean, I guess it had like a hateful thing you can say, Christian. <laughs> that's pretty bad. Yeah, 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 that's pretty. Usually, I'm just like, this sucked and this sucked, and here's why, and this was good. Like, I'll 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 say what was good and what was bad, but I'm very much like, this sucked. Let's not pretend it didn't. That's sort of where I where I. We appreciate I, you keeping it real. On I did. I did watch a YouTube video once where a person said, um, "This wasn't a movie; it was a video." And I'm like, oof, that's rough. <laughs> that's now that's a critique right there. That's we me. all know what that means. <laughs> I, uh, I've also been, I've been launching a flurry of Letterboxd reviews lately because Hannah, I meant, I, you may not know this, uh, I did mention to Christian, but I caught COVID for the very first time last week. Oh no! And in my in my period of isolation, I've been absolutely binge watching all the movies on my watch list. So you guys can see my my COVID. F- 
personal film festival going up on Letterboxd day by day. Until next time, I'm Scott, he's Christian, and this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.